Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the If You Mark in Your Bible podcast. This podcast is associated with the Scattered Abroad Network. So be sure to like, share, and subscribe and check out the episode notes below for contact information, including websites and where we can be found on social media. Again, thank you for your support and let's begin our Bible study. Hey, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode of the If You Mark in Your Bible podcast. My name is Josh, your host, and today we are looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. With us today looking at this passage is Jameson Stewart, the preacher at the West Hobbs Street Church of Christ in Athens, Alabama. And at this time, I'm going to give Jameson an opportunity to introduce himself to our audience. Yeah, uh Glad to be on here with you today. Uh, I graduated uh, from Memphis School of Preaching, uh, just like you did as a few years before you. Graduated in the summer of 2018. I really enjoyed having your dad as a teacher. He taught us, let's see, Matthew. And then we had the, I guess, Mark and Luke and then John as what he taught us, if I remember right. Uh, been preaching ever since then, thankfully. Um, married, have three little kids. I keep us really busy. Um, I also write uh, Centered on Christ, uh, which is free blog. Essentially, anyone can read uh, those articles involved with some podcasting occasionally with Scattered Broad Network as well. And really, really glad to be on with you today. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Drew mentioned that your your class was pretty unique. And about the time y'all were going to school, Brother Elkins had passed away. And so, and then my dad took over the, the gospel accounts and only class to go through that, uh, with him. So, mm-hmm. uh, great opportunity. I know we thought highly of that class, uh, in general, a lot of good people came out of it. So glad of the work you guys are doing and I enjoy reading your blog as well. And those, that information will all be in the, the episode notes down below so you can check it out and i would highly recommend it as mentioned earlier we're looking at the parable of the samaritan a uh of the good samaritan which is one that is not foreign to most people uh, if the very least if even if you don't understand it from the biblical perspective uh you do understand it from a secular perspective you have laws like the good samaritan law that protects people who help out uh, from lawsuits and, and that kind of thing so a very popular parable that has infiltrated the secular world and so and we're just going to go ahead and jump into the text jesus is uh approached and behold a lawyer stood up to put him to the test teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life he said to him what is written in the law and how do you read it what do you have there jameson Uh, well that was a the test it's interesting to make note of that uh, when we're beginning this, is he's not coming necessarily with just an innocent question, uh, but it's a test. But the question he asked, uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That was a a common question. That was a common debate, if you will, among the Jewish teachers of Jesus's day. So, you know, like we may have topics that are, you know, commonly debated or maybe often discussed. This is one of those questions that was a common debate during that time. Uh, later in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, uh, the the rich young ruler, as we call him, he's going to ask Jesus the same question there. So this was a, this wasn't the only time Jesus has asked this question in scripture. This was a, this was a question or debate that happened quite a bit 
among teachers. And it's interesting that Jesus, rather than answer the question, he just turns it around on the lawyer. Uh, sometimes they're called an expert in the law. And he basically asks him essentially, well, what does the law say? You know, you're the expert in the law. After all, how do you understand it? Uh, and then he lets him he lets him give the answer. That's great. And, and that's a great point. I'm glad you brought up tests because uh, I kind of looked through some of the commentaries. Um, some will try and argue that this was a uh, and no point to the phrase stood up at the beginning of this passage. Uh, typical Jewish custom was that the teacher would sit down and the students would stand. And so they'll point to that phrase that he stood up uh, as a show of respect. Uh, I think probably more than likely is more of a sarcastic uh, or facetious type of act. Um, but that word test is only found four times in the New Testament. And I, I underlined it, just put Matthew 4, 7, Luke 4, 12. Both of those instances are when Jesus was in the wilderness with Satan. And he tells him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then First uh, Corinthians 10, verse 9, Paul would write that we should not put Jesus to the test. And I think that's the same context or tone in which Luke is using it. Uh, and I agree with you 100%. I don't think there was uh, a, a sincere inquiry of information. That was being asked here. I think this was an attempt to tempt or, or ensnare Jesus, as all the the religious rulers and scribes and so forth tried to do. Um, and so I think he was looking to get into a debate uh, with Jesus, which is going to be important here in, in just a few more passages. Uh, but also like what you say about him returning uh, with just a question. And I think what we're going to see here as we go through this text is that. The word lawyer there in the Greek has the thought of, of one who is skilled at debate. And I, and I think this man probably understood he had this skill set, probably had a little bit of a reputation for being capable of debating. And we're going to see Jesus uh, head and shoulders above him from that perspective. And, and that's one thing I, I enjoy about reading accounts like this is just how masterful Jesus handles uh, his opposition from from that standpoint. So uh, very, uh, and, and he does so again, Mashville here does not disappoint. Do you have anything else on those two verses before we move on? Well, it's just kind of an interesting thought on what you said there is he was a, a master of debate. Is Jesus let the guy who was at least he thought really good at talking do the talking here at first, and then he would turn that around on him. So uh, Jesus just sort of lets him, talk his way into where Jesus wants this whole discussion to go anyway. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's amazing to watch him work through the, the pages of scripture uh, from that perspective. Verse 27. It says, and the scribe answered, you shall love your, you shall love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, talking about the scribe, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? What do you have there? Well, the, the scribe, the expert in the law, he replies by quoting from two uh, Old Testament passages. He goes to Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and then that's the part, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind with your entire being is the idea. 
that's Deuteronomy 6, and then Leviticus 19.18, that's the section about loving your neighbor as yourself. And these were passages that Jewish people were familiar with all the way from the time that they were small children. Um, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, it emphasized the importance of loving God with the entire self, and, and that that should even be taught to the children. Whereas Leviticus 19, verse 9 through verse 18, that emphasizes the importance of, of caring for one's neighbor. And in that section, uh, Leviticus 19, 9 through 18, it mentions uh, the poor, the foreigner, the hired worker, the deaf, the blind, fellow Israelites, and it also says those among your people. So it's there's all these people that Leviticus 19 emphasizes. They are your neighbor. You should care for them, treat them right. And so after hearing what the expert in the law said, Jesus replies, basically, you're right. In fact, uh, elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus gives this same answer. Uh, you know, you shall love the Lord. You know, what's the greatest command? You shall love the Lord your God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus tells him, you're right. That's the correct answer. Do this and you'll live. Do this and you'll have the eternal life that you seek. And uh, the lawyer's response then, it's verse 29 when he says that he was wanting or desiring to justify himself is a very key phrase then that that gives us insight into this into what's going on that we wouldn't have otherwise because his follow-up question wanting to justify himself uh, i've been going through writing and teaching through in a bible class the book of romans and justification being justified is a really big point in that book and basically to be justified is the idea of uh, when the judge declares the individual on trial to be innocent. It's as if the charges have been thrown out. Uh, and in this idea of justifying self, it shows up a few other times in Luke. In, uh, in Luke 16, verse 15, Jesus there says to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. In other words, you want to appear innocent before others, but God knows your heart. God knows the truth. You're not as innocent as you try to appear. And then later in Luke 18, verse 9, uh, Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And he tells that parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised other, others. And so this follow-up question, and who is my neighbor, is asked by the scribe, the expert in the law, to try and declare himself innocent of guilt. Uh, he's trying to, you know, basically, I'm not on the hook for anything wrong. I've done everything exactly right as I should. And he's trying to declare himself innocent of guilt because based on his first question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, if he has fallen short and what must be done to inherit eternal life, well, then where does that leave him? Doesn't leave mm -hmm. him in a place where he wants to be. Right. Uh, and so uh, that's why he's asking this follow up question is he doesn't like it seems he does not like where this discussion may be heading. And he wants to, you know, Jesus, let's define our terms very carefully, because if we, you know, if we make our neighbor too broad, well, uh, that's going to make me look real bad. <laughs> 
No, it's that's great. You mentioned uh, it's Matthew twenty two forty. Uh, I didn't only really I know that is because I wrote that in in the margin of my Bible. Upon this hangs all the law and the prophets. Uh, and and I'm glad you brought up the rich young ruler as well. That word just that that phrase desiring to justify himself. I tried to find why, what what exactly that meant. What exactly was he trying to justify? And I think it's probably a combination of the both uh, of the two. Uh, he was either trying to justify his his past actions, in other words, think areas, and, and I'm, I really appreciate you bringing up uh, Leviticus 19 and and the fact that every God's already stated answered that question through the law of who your neighbor is. Yeah, uh, and I think that's you know part of it is he probably hasn't been acting uh, or treating everyone in the same way. And so maybe that's why he's doing this. I think another portion of this is is when he asked that question initially, uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He probably thought he was going to stump Jesus and and Jesus. So it seems easily, I mean, I'll, I'll say easily, easily answers the question, turns it on him, puts it back on him to answer it himself and, and shifted for lack of a better term, shifted the debate in his favor rather than the scribes. And so maybe there's a portion of this desiring to justify himself, add a little more complexity to this question because Jesus handled it so easily uh, at the beginning. Uh, And again, just comes back to that thought of Jesus being uh, so masterful at the, at debate, Uh, even to those who I would argue were known for their debating skills. Jesus is, uh, head and shoulders again above him um and then he just and who is my neighbor is is i think a question all of us need to ask and and i think that's probably one of the crowning statements of this section of scripture at least for us from an application standpoint who is my neighbor uh, and we need to remember our place in this story uh, it's not yeah. the one who is beaten and it's not uh it's you know maybe not the robbers hopefully not the robbers but remember our place in it decide beforehand uh, what we're going to do and uh mercy is to be given both inside and outside of our circles which includes the church and in the world and all that i think there's a lot of evangelistic uh, application that we can take from this uh but a question that we definitely should uh should be asking ourselves you have anything else on those passages before we move on yeah, the yeah. one of the sources that I had to to study for this was it pointed out that the the common interpretation of during this time among the experts in the law and the Pharisees, uh, the question "Who is my neighbor?" was that they limited that to fellow Jews, and even more specifically, often they limited it to fellow righteous Jews. So when he's and this is where kind of like you said, he's asking this follow up question because he's looking for a debate. There was no debate whatsoever in that first question because he answered it. And Jesus basically said, good job. And he moved on. And so now he asks a question that he thinks, OK, well, there's a lot more complexity. There's a lot more to be debated here. Because, and the way they interpreted it was very, very narrow. Our neighbor are basically they would the Pharisees would have seen it as people like us. and. Mm-hmm. Based on that, Leviticus 19, 9 through 18, though, would say something very different than what they thought. And kind of based on that, that's where Jesus goes next, is in answering, who is my neighbor? 
no that's that <laughs> that is good and um I'm just reminded usually it takes man to come in and, and mess up the simplest of, of, of doctrines for lack of a better term. Uh, like yeah. I said, and like not a out early, yeah, <laughs> Leviticus 19, uh, stated it and he stated it correctly and then, uh, wanted to. So he moves on. Jesus begins to talk about the parable. Uh, of the good Samaritan. And he, he says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. What do you have there, Jameson? Well, um, just a couple notes about what this kind of setting the the scene for us. We're not as familiar with this road, I suppose, as they would have been. Um, but the road from Jerusalem to Jericho it was a very steep. If you were going to Jericho from Jerusalem, it was a very steep descent. Um, you went from about 2,500 feet above sea level to by the time you got down to Jericho, you were about 1,000 feet below sea level. So you were dropping... 3,500 feet on this road. The road's about 17 miles long, and it was very dangerous because there was a lot of caves where thieves often hid. They would, they would wait for a, a caravan or some, you know, business owner to come by who was not so well protected, and they would often try and rob that individual. And as it turns out in this parable, the man going to Jericho, he's attacked and robbed by thieves on this road, and he's left half dead. Um, also interesting is the priest and the Levite, they see him lying there half dead. A guy that's half dead is going to appear. You're not going to be sure if he's dead or not. And it's interesting because the priest and the Levites, um, they served in various roles in the temple and the temple grounds. They had a special obligation to remain ceremonially pure. Uh, Leviticus 21 and 22 talks about that. One of the things that they were forbidden from doing was they were forbidden from touching a dead body. Uh, Leviticus 21 verse 11 points out that even of some family members, they weren't allowed to touch the dead body. There was some debate. Um, in fact, if the priest could even attend to the ordinary uh, burial rituals of close family members when they died. And so what Jesus says here about the priest and the Levite, while it seems shocking to us, you know, how could you just leave that guy lying there? For them, they probably, people who heard this parable, they may not have thought it was that shocking because, hey, this guy's half dead. If the priest and Levites go over there and try to attend to this guy and it turns out he's dead, well, now they're ceremonially unclean. Now they got to go through this big, long purification ritual. They got to get somebody else to cover their shift at work in our terms. You know, there's a, there's a, it goes through a lot of trouble for them and for others if they try to help this guy and it turns out he's dead and it probably looked like he was dead. And so they just choose, rather than go through all that trouble, I'm going to pass by on the other side. And I guess their mindset, I guess, was hopefully someone else will come along and help this guy. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that Jesus points that out. Uh, that's, and, and that's the, 
the ceremony to get clean, I'm glad you brought that up, and it wasn't necessarily sinful for them yeah. to to touch a, a body. It's just that I would argue it's more inconvenient. Like you said, it puts people out, uh, not only themselves, but the ones who have to cover for them and, and so forth, which I, I think you're right at probably how they justified it from this parable wasn't uncommon for uh, them to probably shirk some of their moral obligations uh, under the guise of, of their, their work obligations uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, and I'm happy you brought that out because that word saw he saw and saw him in 32. And then we're going to see it again in verse 33 when the Samaritan comes uh, is not a, it leaves no doubt that they saw this man and saw his condition and, and noticed his condition. It's not a, he wasn't off uh, in the sense of maybe they didn't see him or didn't realize how bad he was. Maybe he was sleeping. They understood that uh, he was there and that he was injured uh, and left uh, for dead. I underline that phrase, Jesus replied. And I just put the, the, the note there that Jesus does not answer the question, but ask, essentially he's asking another question. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it to be a good neighbor? So they ask, who is my neighbor? He's turning the question on again, masterful from a debate perspective, turning the question on them. What's it to be a good neighbor? And uh, we see here, you see, you see the robbers fell on him. Uh, you have the iron rule. Then you have the silver rule uh, by the Levite and the priest, which is iron rules just take, you know, the, the biggest and the baddest takes from the weak and, and exploits the weak. Whereas in the silver rule is more of a, uh, minding your own business. I'm not necessarily doing evil on anyone, uh, but I'm not going out of my way to, to do good either. And, and from an, I would say an application standpoint, that's usually kind of where the world sits. This is, I would say this is where good people sit. I'm not bothering anyone. I'm minding my own business. uh, And I'm friendly to those who are friendly with me. And and I kind of avoid everyone else uh, from that perspective. And unfortunately, sometimes we may get into the, the snare or the trap of thinking that being a good person is all that's required of us. And you go Leviticus 19 and 20, be holy for I am holy, First Peter chapter 1. The Christian's called to be more than just a good person. And, and I you know, appreciate that Jesus points this out. Uh, the robbers saw a opportunity to exploit this man. And I think the priests and Levites saw this man as an inconvenience to themselves, like you pointed out. Everything that they would have to go through in order to put themselves in a position to to perform their duties. Uh, maybe, maybe they thought as they were going down, just from this this parable perspective, that uh, they would be harmed as well, so they didn't have time to help them. Uh, maybe they uh, another reason that was given is maybe they would have been accused. Uh, possibly of committing the crime themselves you know, if they were standing around them. Uh, and so there were, and, and the, the only reason I bring that up is I think we sometimes find a lot of ways to justify the things that we do to keep from being inconvenienced. Uh, and, yeah. and I think Jesus is touching on that as well. You have anything else uh, on through 32? No, not through 32. 33 through 35, because we're starting to get into the, the crux of this, this parable. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, 
came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring, and pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. What do you have there? Well, something really interesting about this parable um, that I I found in studying for this is that the parable Jesus tells uh, bears a striking resemblance to an event that happened in Second Chronicles twenty eight five through fifteen. Just to summarize that section, um, the northern kingdom of Israel had defeated the southern kingdom of Judah in battle. They killed like 120,000 of Judah's mightiest warriors. And that all happened, the text tells us, because Judah had forsaken the Lord God. So basically, God used the northern kingdom to punish the southern kingdom. Well, Israel takes 200,000 captives from Judah. And the text says they take much spoil. And they brought it all to Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. Well, God then sends a prophet named Oded, to rebuke the northern kingdom for showing no mercy to their brethren. And it says that God's wrath was now upon them, the northern kingdom, because they showed no mercy. And God commands them through Oded to return the captives. And then some of the leaders of Israel from the tribe of Ephraim, they stand up and they oppose uh, their own countrymen from the northern kingdom in bringing those captives to Israel. And it says that the army of Israel they left the captives and the spoils that they had taken there. And then those leaders from Ephraim, they take the captives, they clothe them, they give them things to eat and drink. They address the wounds of the injured. And those who are too weak, too sick, too injured to walk, they let them ride on donkeys. And they return them back to their brethren in Jericho, and they go back home to Samaria. The parable that Jesus tells it's there's several interesting connections to what happens there in Second Chronicles 28, 5 through 15. And the emphasis there is the folks from Ephraim, they were the ones who had mercy on those captives. They were merciful to them. And that showed in standing up for them and saying this isn't right. And also in all the things that they gave them. And so then they were also in Samaria. And now you come to this parable and of all people. It's a Samaritan that comes along, and when he sees this man who's been beaten and left for dead, it says that he has compassion and he helps him. Now, at this time, the Jews and Samaritans, uh, they had absolutely nothing to do with each other. Uh, John 4, verse 9, the Samaritan woman at the well basically tells that to Jesus. Is, we don't have anything to do with each other. We have nothing in common with each other. I think I'd even read something uh, once that pointed out that they wouldn't even use like the same, we would say, like the same drinking glasses or the same eating utensils. Um, if they happen to be in the same area, they're, they're not even going to use the same spoon or the same fork that a Samaritan used. Um, Samaritans were a mixture. They had Jewish ancestors, but they were also a mixed race with Gentile people. They didn't follow the typical Jewish customs and laws. They only accepted the first five books of Moses, like. That was the only thing they accepted from God. They rejected everything else. They had, at one point, they had built their own temple, challenging the Jews' right to have their temple in Jerusalem. So this is a people, this is a, this is a Samaritan. This was a group of people 
that ordinarily they and the Jews hated one another. The prejudice, the hatred, the bitterness ran very, very deep, and it went back generations. They hated each other. In fact, you go all the way, I guess really back, it started all the way back in books like Nehemiah. You see it developing, and from there on, there's this mistreatment and hatred and prejudice and bitterness over and over again for hundreds of years. And so the fact that a Samaritan of all people stops to help this man is that would have been a shocking detail to anyone who was listening to this parable. That's a great point. Also, you do, like you mentioned, the, the hatred. Also, I think the Jews tried to justify their hatred with the Samaritans because there were times throughout their history. And like you said, essentially starting in Nehemiah, that any time a Samaritan could, they wanted to claim essentially Jewish heritage until it didn't benefit them. And then when it didn't benefit them, then all of a sudden they forgot the Jews. Uh, yeah. They cheered for uh, conquerors who would uh, persecute the Jews. The Samaritans would cheer on the persecutor and all that. So uh, from I, I would argue from an earthly perspective, there's probably some justification on why the Jews despise the Samaritans so much. Um, but again, I think what we're seeing here is is the way the world and particularly this scribe was looking at things is from a Samaritan standpoint or just Jews in general is a very general the Samaritan people where Jesus, I, I think, brings it down to a micro level from the standpoint of this is an individual upon a, acting upon an individual. Same thing with the priest and the Levi. These are these are not groups of individuals dealing with each other. This is one person dealing with another person and how you look at it. And we made the the point earlier in previous passage 32 and we're starting in verse 30 that the thieves looked at someone to whom they could exploit. Uh, the religious leaders looked at uh, or the priest and Levi looked at it from the standpoint of this man was an inconvenience. Uh, and here we see the Samaritan uh, enacting the golden rule. And essentially he saw a neighbor in need. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm uh, there, the sacrifice throughout this whole, and I think Jesus is, is doing this intentionally, uh, when he talks about, uh, pouring oil and wine on him to help him, but then he puts him on his own animal and brought him to the end. And then he used his own money to care for him. Uh, and then he put the debt upon himself, not upon the man. Like I've taken him this far, but uh, when you come in from that standpoint, and what we see is Jesus now in this, rather than answering the question, who is my neighbor? And we, he makes that point, what type of neighbor are you? He shifted the responsibility. Uh, and, and I'm glad you brought up the fact that the neighbor uh, was a filtered uh, or a very specific group of people in the eyes of a Jew. It was essentially a, a faithful Jew was, is how they would consider their neighbor. And everyone else, it would appear that they didn't. And, and when you look at it from that perspective, what you have is, is you have a group of people who are putting a requirement on everyone else that if I'm going to be your neighbor, this is how you have to act. This is the things that you have to do in order to be my neighbor, where Jesus is now putting it around saying, what type of neighbor are you to everybody? And and it's yeah. it's a personal responsibility type of thing that, that goes on. You have anything else there through 35? Yeah, no, just that the, I mean, the Samaritan as the neighbor, the neighbor in the parable is someone the Jew would have considered an enemy, not a neighbor. I mean, like you said, the 
the well, who they considered to be a neighbor, the Samaritan would have been about the farthest thing from what they considered to be a neighbor. So this, yeah, it's Jesus is really turning this whole discussion in a different direction from what the the lawyer thought it would take. Right. I wonder how many people listen to this peril put themselves in the in the place of the man who was beaten. Because uh, if you if you're in that role and you put yourself in that place and, and just I mean just do it hypothetically now if you're you're beaten left for dead it really doesn't matter who comes by to help you and it really doesn't matter who comes by and, and refuses to help you and and I think that's kind of the standpoint if if I'm laying there in need of help. And a Samaritan's helping me from that standpoint, it doesn't matter who this person is. And that only yeah. matters to the ones who who aren't it. So um, continue on, verse 36 says, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. What do you have there? Well, this is, I think, those final two verses. This is. Most parables typically had a single point, um, like a main driving point behind them. And I think this is basically the point of this parable is who was the neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? Who was the, well, going back to the, the passage earlier from Second Chronicles 28, who was the neighbor to the captives from Judah? Well, in both examples, it was the one who showed mercy. That was the neighbor, the merciful one. And Jesus tells the expert in law here, you go and do likewise. The expert in the law, the lawyer, he'd been trying to to limit his obligation to love his neighbor, you know, to a smaller group of people, the, the righteous, faithful Jewish people, as he viewed them as himself, limited to that so as to clear himself of any guilt in loving his neighbor so that he would then be deserving of eternal life. But that kind of thinking was focused on self and it as Jesus tells them later in Matthew 23 23 it neglected the weightier matters of the law justice mercy and faith uh, Micah 6 verse 8 says that the Jewish people they were supposed to love mercy and so in trying to limit his obligation to love his neighbor so that he could then justify himself uh and therefore, then perhaps from the standpoint of I now deserve or I've merited or I've earned eternal life, he views himself as not needing the mercy of God. And I think that's where Jesus is going with him here is the way that you're looking at yourself, the way you're looking at your defining neighbor. You are you are doing all of this and you're not realizing that you, too, need the mercy of God. Because that's where Jesus is ultimately going to go in his teaching. And with what he does is the point being is everyone needs God's mercy. And this was a group of people, specifically the fellow he's talking to and others in that group, who they did not see themselves as needing what God was offering through Christ. Um, multiple times throughout the gospel accounts, uh, when Jesus heals the man born blind in John chapter 9, basically you get down to the end of that, they ask Jesus, well, are we blind too? And he tells them the problem is, is you don't even realize that you're blind. Um, and, and over and over again, that kind of thing happens. And so since this man didn't see himself as needing the mercy of God, 
why would he show that kind of mercy? Why would he show such great mercy as illustrated in this parable to somebody else? This kind of this connection I think Jesus is making. You need to see yourself as needing God's mercy. And then someone who sees themselves in that light, then this is how you will treat others. You will be merciful to others when you realize how much you need God's mercy yourself. Excellent. Excellent. I circled that phrase, do you think? Which of these three do you think prove to be? And I, again, just going back to Jesus um, being so so good at this. Uh, again, he, Jesus hasn't answered any of these questions. Jesus essentially, the scribes answered his own question in all these, yeah. uh, all these instances, uh, which you know just proves uh, what Jesus uh, or how special Jesus was. Underlined, uh, proved uh, to be a neighbor to the man. Just referenced verse twenty-nine. I in my Bible, it's actually on the next page. If it wasn't, I would actually draw a circle and 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 draw a line up to it to connect that phrase. You know, who is my neighbor? And then essentially Jesus, who proved to be the neighbor? Uh, and it goes back to what we we talked about earlier. I also wonder how verse 37, how hard it was for him to say the one who showed him mercy. Um, and I don't want to speculate, but maybe uh, too painful to say the Samaritan. Uh, so yeah. he phrased it that particular way. And, and again, uh, it's humbling. Uh, from that standpoint, to see someone you hate so much being the one who's the one showing uh, care and compassion. If this were a real-life situation, uh, more than likely that Samaritan had been chastised or rebuked or, or ridiculed by someone like the man whom he helped. Uh, yet he put aside those personal differences and, and, and helped him and, 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 used, and was used as Jesus as, as the example. Last thing I have as far as just notes, is I went to the very beginning of this passage and just put this question, based on everything that Jesus taught, just simply put the question, uh, what type of neighbor am I? And, and I think from a, uh, I'll just look at it from a spirit, hopefully most people would see someone on the side of the road in a condition that this man was and stop. Uh, I think there's a natural inclination for most people to have compassion on that type of individual. Um, well, this is more from a spiritual standpoint, maybe in, a, in and we, we just, Rob Whitaker was here a couple, uh, about six weeks ago. So we're kind of in that evangelistic mindset. And so, it's 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 this. What kind of neighbor am I to have the the spiritual healing that the Bible provides and walk past my neighbor on a daily basis without lending any type of help uh, from that standpoint? Um, it just again, as, as we sit here and talk about those who would listen to Jesus give this parable in person and what was going through their minds and in this scribe and and it's this final portion that I think the majority of uh, the desire to justify himself in verse 29 was more about his actions, less about him trying to uh, to win the debate and more about to justify his actions. Uh, and, and here, again, the parable did exactly what it was supposed to do. This man was, was self-reflecting on himself. He couldn't answer Jesus any other way than the way he did at the end. I'm hoping. Uh, I don't know, but hoping uh, that this man went away 
uh, with a a mindset of, of a changed theology uh, based on on what he was uh, accustomed to, and so uh, so as I read this, just me personally, uh, it takes that that evangelistic tone uh, at this point because. Uh, are we doing that from a spiritual standpoint? Are we walking past our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers who are, um, for lack of a better term, spiritually left for dead and uh, just going by for whatever reason? We don't want to face the ridicule. We don't hurt the relationship, whatever it is. Do you have anything else on that? Yeah, just pointing to, you know, we kind of see, obviously, in this parable, I think we also see what Jesus did for us. I mean, Ephesians 2 Verse one through three points out when we were, I mean, we weren't half dead when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Uh, and then verse four and five says, God, who is rich in mercy, he sent Jesus to die for us when we were still Romans five, verse six through 10 talks about how we were sinners. We were enemies. We were weak. We were helpless. We were opposed to God. But when we were all those things, Christ came and died for us. And so the picture we have in the New Testament is Jesus, God through his son, Jesus Christ, showed mercy on us who were the ones lying on that road, so to speak, lying dead in sin. And God and his son had mercy on us, sacrificed tremendously uh, for us, gave himself, died. Uh, he who was rich became poor so that we might become rich, Second Corinthians 8, 9. Just as the Samaritan sacrificed tremendously from himself, of himself, to help this man who was dead, to save this man who was dead, so Jesus has done the same to us. And when we, I think when we come to, when we really appreciate and understand what Jesus has done for us, then we are in a position where, okay, I, now we will be able to, understanding what he did for us, I can now treat others in a way that he has treated me. Um, and I, th I, think, I think that's really kind of the power in this parable is it ultimately it points us back to what Jesus has done for us. And now he tells us, you go and treat others how I've treated you. Great point. Sense of obligation almost. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very, very good. That's a great way to end it. Jameson, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate your thoughts. Uh, very, very thought-provoking. appreciate the history you, you uh, put into this, this parable as well. Uh, those who are listening, thank you. Like, share, subscribe. Uh, and until next time, uh, we'll see you. All right.